Hello and welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermon Podcast. I'm sitting here with Pastor Ken who just preached a message on John chapter 3. We're here on the Postscript set ready to answer your questions. But before that, let's listen to Pastor Ken's message now. Hey, hey, welcome. So glad that you're here on this fun day Sunday. I know that a number of you are guests and maybe you're here because your kids had been told that there was lots of candy. And that is true. We do our best to support the dentists in our community. So welcome to Faith Bridge. And I hope that you'll come back. Uh, starting next week, we're going to do a new series that we're calling Above and Beyond. And uh, I'm particularly excited about that series and particularly about uh, the middle uh, of those Sundays. We're going to have a special guest preacher who's going to come. I should say he's going to come back from Washington, D.C. Ben Stewart will be here. And yeah, you can clap. That's exciting. And so uh, be sure that you're here uh, here as we go into November and into the Above and Beyond um, series. So take your Bibles and let's go to John chapter 3 in the New Testament. And if you need a Bible, the ushers are going to bring them right now and they'll be glad to spot you one and you can even keep it. It's our gift to you if you, if you could uh, use a Bible. So John chapter 3 is where we're going to go in a few minutes. But while you're turning there, I'll tell you about something that happened yesterday. I was talking to a businesswoman in the community and she, uh, knowing that I'm a pastor, not her pastor, she goes to a different church, but she said, well, Ken, I won't get to go to church tomorrow. No, she said, no, because uh, tomorrow is one of the Sundays I have to work. I said, oh, bummer. She said, do you think God's mad at me about that? I, about having to work tomorrow? And she said, yes. I said, well, if he's mad at you for having to work every other Sunday, he must be furious at me. Because, see, I work every single Sunday. And so I said, Holly, I, I don't think that he's mad at you about that because the Sabbath is something that he created not to punish us with, but he gave it to us as a gift because he knew that our souls could use some rest once a week. It's why, parenthetically, I try to take off, take my Sabbath on Mondays. But I could uh, sense, even though she was wanting to believe what I was saying might be true, that she had it pretty well ingrained into her that God was sure to be angry with her about her having to work today. And I suspect that she's not the only one who has conceptions of God like that. I know a lot of people who maybe not as openly as Holly was being with me yesterday, but privately, perhaps from time to time, they wonder. They wonder how, how far is too far with God? What's the point beyond which God says, that's it, enough? What's the bottom line for God, people wonder? What's inbounds? What's out of bounds with God? Where are the chalk lines drawn? Not where are the chalk lines drawn by this church or that denomination or that religion, but by God himself. Where are his chalk lines drawn? People have been wondering that since the beginning of time. It's why there are so many religions and, and, and spiritualities around the world, because everybody's trying to figure this out. One such group who came along made it their life calling to figure out 
just what we're talking about here. What's in bounds and what's out of bounds with God. They were called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they didn't just have 10 commandments that they felt like they had to obey. That's intramural level to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had come up with a list of 613 commands they had to obey, plus a bunch of other fine print on pretty much every subject. So, for example, the Pharisees had come up uh, with a, a very clear commandment that says you have to pray before you eat your food on location. And so if you realize that you didn't pray when you were eating that meal, you got to go back and reenact that whole thing. You got to pray that time, which would be really bad if you're on a road trip to Dallas and you're four hours in and you realize McDonald's, we forgot to say the prayer. You'd have to turn around and go back and say the prayer. See, that's that's what the, the Pharisees were all into this type of detail. Why did they do this? Because the Pharisees, they genuinely wanted to figure it out. They wanted to get it right with God. They didn't want to take any chances. They wanted to make sure that God was always happy with them. But the Pharisees, who numbered several thousand, um, well, they were actually just the JV team. Who was varsity then? They were called the ruling council or the Sanhedrin. There were 70 of them. Those were the older, wiser, more established, creme de la creme Jewish teachers. They were called the Sanhedrin in all of Israel. And anybody, if anybody, had the principles of God ironed out clearly, it was the guys on the Sanhedrin. This is why the story that we're going to look at today in John chapter 3 is particularly interesting. Ken Geyer writes, the Sanhedrin was at the top of the religious ladder, looking down at everyone else. But something from that landscape, from that spiritual vantage point, just didn't feel quite complete, at least not to one of those 70 on the Sanhedrin. So he stepped down off his Sanhedrin ladder to walk the streets searching one night cloaked in darkness, winding his way through the side streets of Jerusalem cautiously, ever so, ever so often stepping into the shadows to avoid the recognition of anybody. Most of his peers were convinced Jesus is not the real deal. But this one in 70, he couldn't shake his curiosity. This curiosity that came from this Jesus who, who was taking the land like a storm. He was so enigmatic, though, Jesus was. He had no credentials. Yet, his teaching was fascinating and captivating. And his power was profound and amazing. And yet, Jesus had no formal schooling. And to top it all off, Jesus had no desire whatsoever to break into the Sanhedrin's upper echelon of religious leadership. And to this one in 70, that made no sense. Talk on the street was that Jesus just a couple days earlier to turn some water, big cisterns of water and turn them into wine, the finest wine ever. And he wondered, how could that happen? Unless perhaps God's hand 
really was upon him. Well, this member of the Sanhedrin was done lying in bed at night, awake, trying to figure it out. So he got up, got dressed, went out in the dark of night so he could find Jesus and talk to him personally. It's a chancy meeting, really, when you think about it. He had a lot to lose in the way of prestige, his peers. Gossip could certainly hurt him. But he came on. Anyhow, let's read what happens. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Stop there. Who's we? He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Well, that's at least some people in the Sanhedrin. Maybe he was being generous. Maybe there wasn't really a we, but he was just trying to flatter him and sort of butter him up a little bit. But he's saying, hey, we, the top tier, we, we can't help but notice you're doing something. Now, it's right about this point you would think that Jesus might have said, thanks, man. Thank you for noticing. You know, I appreciate the endorsement. I appreciate the compliment. And coming from you, Nicodemus, me and Sanhedrin, that means a real lot to me. Thank you for coming. But he doesn't do that, Jesus doesn't. What's he do? He wastes no time, cuts them off at the knees and says, very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Bam! Now, if any phrase that Jesus uttered has been confusing to the people over the years, it is this phrase, born again. What does that mean? There's so many different interpretations of it. A reporter on TV says, this politician is, is born again. Well, what are you telling me? Are you telling me he's a Republican? Well, Jimmy Carter, he's a Democrat, and he was the only one I remember saying, I am a born again president. By born again, what are you talking about? Ah, you're talking about Ned Flanders on Simpsons, the over-the-top cheery neighbor, the next door, extremely religious with an annoyingly perfect family. Is that what you're talking about? You're talking about somebody who is uh, really craving a lot of moral uh, authority, sort of prudish structure all around them. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about somebody who's very broken, like an alcoholic or some other, uh, uh, someone who's addicted, who, who's, but he's turned around and he's gotten sober and he's building a plan and he's changed. What are you talking about when you say born Again, I read about an attractive young lady who in an interview was asked, how do you handle, handle the unwanted overtures of men? She said, simple, I've learned five words. Have you been born again? Whatever it means, she's learned it keeps the men from coming on to her. So there's a lot of different meanings in people's minds. Well, if it's confusing today, you know it had to be confusing in Nicodemus's day, because he never heard the term before. It never been used. Nicodemus has come by the dark of night, and he's trying to give him a compliment to sort of get the conversation rolling along. And Jesus does a little jujitsu 
and just flips it right there and says, no, Nicodemus, I know you're a bottom line kind of guy, so I'm just going to cut to the quick here. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is perplexed. Verse 4, he says, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. What are you talking about, Jesus? Born again? That sounds weird. Are you talking gynecology? This is a very strange reply that you're giving me, Jesus replied. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you should be born again. Now, here's what I want to do in our remaining minutes. I want to try to talk about four things quickly. What does it mean to be born again? What does that mean? How does that happen? Who is it for? And how would I know if it happened to me first, what does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it does not mean. And you can derive what it does not mean simply by looking at Nicodemus. It can't mean adding extra religious rigor uh, or structure to a person's life because Nicodemus was way ahead of anybody else. He's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now it can't be that you need to be more religious, more structured, more prude, more of that. No, no, no. Nor was Nicodemus an emotionally cathartic sort. You know, I just need to have a moment. No, that's not it. And Jesus wasn't asking him to do one of those either. Nicodemus was a man who seemingly had it all together. He's older, he's wealthy, he's powerful, he's influential, he's upper echelon. So if anybody could be excused for thinking, you know, I've done pretty good on my own. Eh, you know, Nicodemus would have been that guy. And yet Jesus was saying, you got to be born again. You got to have a new birth, spiritually speaking. Because, Nicodemus, all of your accomplishments count for nothing. Everything you've worked for is zero in God's kingdom. If you want to know the love of God personally, you're going to have to start completely over, 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 completely new, completely transformed because none of your accomplishments count for anything in my kingdom. And this was very confusing to Nicodemus. It's confusing to us today because we tend to think along the lines of, you know, I'm going to try to be really good. I'm going to try to be really friendly. I'm going to try to be really moral and not say things and not do things and not look at things that I shouldn't look at. And then we assume for all of that hard effort, in the end, when the scales of justice are, are weighed and I'm there, God, Jesus will step up and put his arm around me and say, hey, you're done pretty good. Not perfect, but good enough. Good enough that I'm going to take it from here and put you over the, the finish line. We envision him sort of stepping up like it was a tug of war rope and, and saying, hey, you're, you're clearly not going to get this thing quite done on your own. So I'm just going to add a little of my supernatural, bam, you know, and, and, and to bring us over. That's what we tend to think of as the way it must work. And Jesus is saying nothing of the sort. Every other major world religious leader who came along did say that very sort of thing. 
Here's the way to follow God. You need to pray facing this direction. You need to do it this many times per day. You need to kiss this person's hand at the top of the you know, religious food chain that you're a part of. You, you have all of these sorts of things. Okay, I'm going to do all of those things. And if you do well enough, they tell you, you'll be in. You'll be good with God. But Jesus comes and says, nope, none of that counts for anything. Doesn't even get you close. All of you are a hopeless mess. Even you, Nicodemus, the cream of the crop. You can't be tweaked. You can't be tuned up. You got to start. You got to have a whole new identity, Nicodemus. Totally reborn. If there was a person who came along in history 500 years ago, like Nicodemus, it was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He was a, an educator. He worked in the seminary and he taught the, the, the young priests who were coming along and learning how to be priests. And if there was anybody who really wanted to check off all the boxes and get it right with God so that he would be found in God's good favor, it was Martin Luther. As a matter of fact, they say that he would go to the confessional two and three times a day. And you get the feeling that the priest in the confessional booth is like, oh, Lord, here he comes again. You know, and you know, how many times, Martin, how many times do we have to do this every single day? You keep coming back over and over. And yet he couldn't ever feel right. The whole reason he'd gone into the ministry, the whole reason he was teaching at the seminary, the whole reason he was doing this because he wanted to be right with God. He was trying so hard. But then one day something happened that turned him inside out and sent a shot ricocheting across the bow of religion that, that had forgotten the heart of Jesus' teachings as, and was giving into corruption. He read something in the book of Romans, Martin Luther did, that flipped his world upside down and caused him to realize, I won't ever be able to save myself. I'll never even nearly be able to save myself. I'll never even partially be able to contribute even a little something that would help out in the way of my salvation. Only and completely only, it comes down to Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross for me. I gotta put my faith in him, 100% of it, and zero of percent of my faith in me because he came and lived the perfect life I couldn't live and died the death I deserved to die of punishment. And then he conquered the grave I would never conquer. And once Martin Luther wrapped his heart and his mind around that, then he grew peaceful. He grew confident. He grew resilient. He basically said, as long as I'd been trying to become righteous so that God would be pleased with me, it was futile. But the moment I realized I can't do it, I can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. So I'll just trust myself to him by faith. Only then did he finally experience the Savior's touch of love and grace and acceptance and peace. That was the day that Martin Luther was born again. It was the day he experienced the difference between what it means to try to save yourself and to let Jesus save you. He was born again. 
So, how does this transaction occur? Well, really, it takes a couple of things to happen. Uh, as Tim Keller points out, the first thing is there, there's going to have to be an axe taken to your tree. There's going to have to be an axe taken to your tree. Illustrates it this way. Suppose you had a peach tree and that peach tree every year put forth beautiful peaches, tasty peaches, and you like your peach tree. And, but then one day you said, you know what, I'm tired of having peaches. I want apples. I'm going to the applesauce business. In fact, I don't want any more peaches in my orchard. I want only apple trees in my orchard. Now, what could you do to, to, to get apples? Well, you could say, I'll just go and fertilize a little bit more and I'll water a little bit more and then I'll have apples. That's not going to get you apples. That'll just get you better peaches. You could say, well, I, I'm going to go and prune back the peach trees. That's it. I'll prune. No, that's not going to. That just gives you bigger peaches. You could say, well, you know what? I'm going to tape some apples on the peach tree, sort of graft them in, sort of, uh, you know, prime the pump and get things going. That's not going to. The only way you're ever going to get apples off a tree is if you take down the peach tree and plant a new tree. And that's what Jesus is saying in the born again experience. There, there is a dying that has to happen. An ax taken to our ankles, taking us down at the root and saying, it's not about me, where we are repenting of our self and of our self-efforts at salvation. That's what we celebrate. Anytime you see a baptism, you see the person who's, who's laid back into the water. What are we saying? The ax has taken this person down. The old them is dead, but that's not where it ends. We bring them out. Because why? Because there's now life. A new life. It's a whole new deal. It's not just a tidied up, you know, tweaked or tinkered with, improved old her. No, no. This is a whole new thing. A whole new thing got dropped inside of her. A whole new thing is inside of him. What is that thing? It's the Holy Spirit has come in to his life, into her life. So there's a dying that has to happen, but then there's a receiving that has to happen. That's the second thing that has to happen if we're going to be born again. We have to receive it. Now, when you think about um, the gift of life being received, uh, well, I think about my two boys and when they were born. They're 11 and they're 14 now. And I was just thinking as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking back to the days that each of them were born. And I, of course, was in the room. I was right there. And Dr. Norton was there and Becky Slagle was there and, and Suzanne was there. And, and, so, <laughs> and so we're all, you know, rooting her on and we're counting and I'm cheering and praying, doing whatever she asked me to do. And, and, but I was thinking about it uh, years later. You know how much the boys contributed in each of their births? Nothing. They contributed nothing to the process. It was all her who was making it happen. They just had to enjoy the ride and come into this new life in this world. 
And, and this is the metaphor that Jesus is using. He's saying you have to be born again. Now, to really appreciate the metaphor, uh, in our day and age, we have to, to appreciate the fact that uh, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have epidurals and other pain uh, you know, relievers and things like that, which is not to minimize in any way what women still have to go through today. But it is to say that in those days, and you know this from history, uh, just several hundred years ago, um, childbearing is a lot more risky. It could be touch and go. And, and any time a woman was having a, a baby back in the day, she might end up giving her whole life. And, and the, the bleeding and all just, just gets it. And, and they would say she died in childbirth. And you hear that story. You read that story. And this is the picture that Jesus is giving us. He's saying, if you want to be born spiritually, if you want to be born Again, you have to realize I am the one who has come to suffer, to bear the pain of that, to bleed, and to die so that you could come out alive. What do you do to contribute? You don't do anything. You just receive it and just say thank you. It's, it's just your gift that you accept the way that you did when you were born from your mother. But the question is, have you accepted that gift? I read an interesting story um, of a man whose name was Wilson, George Wilson. He lived in 1830, and he was caught for robbing the mail. In an attempt to escape, he shot and killed a government employee who had seen him in the act of opening people's letters. And he, he was tried in court, and they sentenced him to be hanged. This was 1830. However, George Wilson's friends prevailed upon the president, Andrew Jackson. And <clears throat> Andrew Jackson uh, then issued a presidential pardon for the sake of his friends to George Wilson. But Wilson did a strange thing. To the astonishment of everyone, in an unprecedented sort of way, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Never had this happened. They didn't know what to do. So the case gets carried all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And finally, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the opinion. And he wrote saying, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But its value is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If the pardon is refused, then it is no pardon. Therefore, George Wilson must be hanged. And he was. Why? Because he never accepted the presidential pardon. You have been sent a pardon, not just from the president, but from Almighty God. The one true God has said, I have pardon for you. But the question is, have you received that pardon? Have you received that life that he offers? You can't contribute anything to it. All you can do is just say thank you for it. So let's talk about who's it for. Well, it's for anybody who ever sinned, which according to my calculation is about 100% of anybody. 
For Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the problem inside of all of us is the contamination of sin. That's where the selfishness comes from. That's where the greed comes from. That's where the lust comes from, the dishonesty. That's not what God created us to, to be wired with. He created us to be generous and open-handed and gracious and forgiving and patient and loyal and kind and virtuous and all these sorts of things. But sin weaseled its way into all of our lives, into each of our souls. And you didn't have to have a lesson to learn how to be sinful. And this, the Bible says, is what separates us from God in whom there is no sin. It's also why Romans 6.23 tells us the penalty or the wages for that sin is death. That's the part we don't like. But the next part is the good part. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So who is the gift for? Anybody who ever sinned. That means it's for you. Who should be born again? You should be born again. A lady asked one of my heroes, John Wesley in the 1700s, noticing you, you preach on being born again, this text in John 3 more than any other text. Why are you always preaching that you have to be born again? He said, because ma'am, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. You know who has the hardest time um, with this whole concept of being born again? Proud people. I was thinking about this even in my devotions this past week. I was in 2 Kings and I was reading the story of Haman. You remember who Haman was? Haman was a commander in the, of the Syrian army, army but he uh, had leprosy. And so his wife had a servant girl who came from Israel and she said, you need to go to Israel and you need to get before the prophet Elisha because Elisha has the anointing of God upon him and he can heal you of that leprosy. He's doing miracles and God's doing great things through Elisha. And so Haman gets all loaded up, the wagons, the chariots, everything's loaded up. He's got all sorts of gifts and all sorts of things they're shipping up from Syria to, to, to Israel. And he gets there and Elisha does this, 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 this surprising thing. He doesn't even go out and greet him. He just knowing what's going on, he just sends a messenger out and says, tell the, tell the man out there to go wash seven times in the river Jordan. And so the messenger goes out and says, you, 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 you just go wash in the river Jordan seven times. And you know what Haman felt? He felt angry. He felt like that was belittling. I am a commander for crying out loud. You're telling me you're not even gonna come out and talk to me? You're, and you're telling me I'm going to get in the Jordan River? We got better rivers in Syria. What in the world? Finally, one of his servants said, um, Mr. Haman, you know, um, if he had said that you need to do something really hard, something challenging, something big, you would have risen to that occasion. What's throwing you off here is that he's asking you to do something so easy, so simple. Just go wash seven times in the water. Why don't you just humble yourself and try it? And finally Haman did, and he was cleansed. It's a precursor to what Jesus is going to come along and tell us as he gives us the gospel, saying you're going to have to be born again. 
but it confounds uh, particularly those of us who are sort of the self-made sort. And I think there's a lot of us uh, here today who are that type of person. I was thinking of one in particular whose friendship I enjoy and have for several years now, I think eight or nine years maybe. He had, uh, back in the day, been uh, one of the vice presidents of a Fortune 500 company that you'd know the name of if I mentioned it. Uh, now he's retired and I believe he's 82. And when we first met eight or nine years ago, I remember uh, he said, I would like to uh, ask you some, we were having coffee. He said, I'd like to ask you some questions. I said, okay. He said, when you get older, and I think at the time he was 75, he said, you start asking spiritual things because you start thinking about spiritual things at this stage of life. I said, I understand. Uh, He was sort of humming around. And and finally I said, well, let me just ask you, uh, have you been born again? He says, uh, well, you know, we, uh, we were, for some years we went to this church and we were kind of involved there. Then we kind of got pulled out and then, and then we got kind of plugged in there. It's a little hit or miss. I think more hit than miss, you know. No, 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 wait. Have you been born again? Well, you know, I, I'm really working to, uh, you know, to, to try to, to sort of clean up my language a little bit and to, try to be a little friendlier and kinder. No, 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 no. I'm asking, have you been born Again, he hadn't been, but he would be. It didn't make any sense. I remember him saying, I, like, I'm looking for the catch. You know, you're telling me that I'm supposed to just trust in what Jesus did on the cross, but I know there's got to be a catch here somewhere. You know, I got, you know, I could give some money here or do something. Right. I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense sense, particularly to the self-made person. But my question is, have you been born again? Who's it for? It's for you. Last thing let's talk about. Would you know? Would I know? How would I know if I have been? Would it make any difference? Oh, it would make a difference. Clearly, it makes a difference. Look at the next verse. He says in in, uh, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it uh, pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. At first, you're like, wait, are you changing the subject? Is that a non sequitur? I don't understand. What are you talking about the wind all of a sudden? No, no, no. It's very much related to what's going on. See, when you've been born of the Spirit, Jesus is saying, it's like the wind of the Holy Spirit. My Spirit comes inside of you. Now, you can't see the wind, but you can feel it. And you can certainly observe its effects. Just ask anybody who's been in a hurricane or anybody who's been in a tornado. You go stand there on that ground and say, nah, I don't know if I really believe in the wind. They're like, yeah, it is real. If you stepped outside today and it's a little bit breezy, what's going to happen? Your hair is going to blow. Some of us wouldn't have that problem. We'll be all right. But if it is windy, 
you'll have that problem, right? Because the, the effects of the wind are unmistakable. And, and the effects of the wind of the Holy Spirit living inside of you are likewise unmistakable. Now, here's my concern. I believe that there are many people who profess to be Christian in America. They say, well, I went to this uh, church meeting or this camp or this revival. Or I prayed this uh, little deal or I signed this deal or I have this little thing that says I was born again and that sort of thing. And so I think I'm good. Well, hang on a second. How is it possible that the supernatural power of God himself could come into your life and not one hair on your head has been mussed up? That's not possible. Not if he's really come in. It's not to say that you won't still sin. Oh, you'll still sin. But after the likes of dishonesty or lustfulness or envy or gossip or rage, there will be a successive and even stronger, more overpowering wind of the spirit that moves in with conviction and ultimately brings about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and humility and forgiveness and all of these sorts of things. But if you look inside your soul or if you ask somebody to look inside your soul and you say, do you see any of that evidence? And they're like, I don't think so. Then you might want to reevaluate. Have you been born again? Some say, I'm not certain that Nicodemus ever was. I mean, you come to the end of John and I mean, it was interesting, but nothing really seemed to happen. Oh, you got to read to the end. It's the best part. You got to get over to John chapter 19 because in John chapter 19, this is right after Jesus has uh, been crucified. Um, and we tend to pass right over this. and We often pass over it uh, as, as, as quickly as we do. An interesting thing happens, John 19 tells us. Two influential men went straight to Pontius Pilate, the governor, Right to the man who had had Jesus executed. Right to the man who could be suspicious of these two men coming, saying, are you a sympathizer? I think I'll have you executed as well. But they didn't care. They go straight to Pontius Pilate and they say, let us have his body. Let us take his body off the cross. This is incredibly bold, courageous, dangerous. But they don't care. And they take down Jesus' body, bloody abused, dead. Jewish men didn't touch dead corpses. Only the, lowly, the lowest people. It was always the job of women and typically slave. So you, the way down at the bottom of the food chain, those people are the people that prepare the bodies, not two upstanding men who were Jewish, who were wealthy, who were Pharisees. Not two of the 70 who were on the Sanhedrin. Who were they? One was Joseph of Arimathea, and it was his tomb that they would bury Jesus in. Who was the other? It was Nicodemus. Something clearly had clicked. Something clearly had changed. 
inside of them. They're no longer embarrassed about it. He's no longer going by the cover of dark at night. He's going in broad daylight, straight to Pilate saying, I'll take care of the body. Why? Because both these men realized, despite their high status, that they were both sinners and they needed to be born again because they needed the forgiving grace of Jesus. Some suppose that John put that passage into chapter 19 just to confirm our suspicions. Did anything ever happen? Yes. They now identified with Jesus fully, not just in the darkness, but in the light as well. Clearly, those two of the 70 had been born again. But have you been born again? You know, it's happening. All around, it's happening. As a matter of fact, I heard a great story just a couple months ago of a young lady, Amanda, here at the church, who just has been born again herself. In fact, take a look at the screens and let her tell the story of her transformation personally. Hi, y'all. I'm Tolu, and this is my sweet friend, Amanda. Um, Amanda came to our community about a year ago or so, around November, and um, her older brother had passed a few years ago, and afterwards she felt doubt and confusion and felt unsure that God's goodness was true for her life. Um, in the wake of losing her brother, Amanda's family faced a major restructuring where she found herself taking care of her older brother's son as her own. When my brother passed away, um, I believed in God, but then very shortly afterwards, I started questioning him and his purpose for me. I had these huge, like life-altering changes where my brother passed, I was grieving, and then all of a sudden, I'm a parent to a five-year-old. And so I was just angry at God. I would sit in church on Sunday mornings with my grandma and I would just sit there and almost roll my eyes in my head. It was never that I didn't believe in him. It was more so I didn't think his plan was good for me. I didn't see the good in it. Shortly after Josh moved in with us, he just started asking, where's my dad? I'd say, your dad's, your dad died. Okay, well, where do you go when you die? Go to heaven? I was pulling from my past childhood experiences of growing up in a very traditional church and knowing that there's a God, knowing that there's heaven, but full-heartedly thinking to myself, like, I don't believe this anymore. And that's why we decided to start taking him to church because I felt unequipped to answer them. I felt like I was having to fake it. My initial prayer when I was walking into Faith Bridge was, hey God, if you want me, I need you to show up in a big way. I need you to prove yourself to me because I am struggling and I, I hate going to church and sitting there and feeling like I'm having to put a fake mask on and pretend to be someone totally different. So my checklist was, I wanna feel at home. I wanna have friends. I want to feel like I'm not being judged for my situation. And it is so easy to look on the outside and think, she looks so young, she has a small kid, and that was probably my biggest fear, was fear of judgment. What are they going to think? 
I think it all stems back to that initial prayer request and him just checking off like my prayers. Like, hey, I got you well connected. You felt at home the first time, like immediately when you walked in. You found community. You found friends. You found lack of judgment. You found people who love you and love Josh. And I think that really fueled my desire to explore my faith a little bit more. I didn't know anything about grace from growing up. I believed in an angry God who liked to punish us for our sins. I didn't understand. We never talked about grace and how it's unearned forgiveness. And so when they started talking about grace, I was like, what is this? What do you mean? He's not going to punish me. I, he extends grace to me when I mess up. I relate so much to the story of the lost sheep where I ran off and yet God was still pursuing me and chasing me and he left the 99 to come after me. And when you actually put that into perspective and you're like, wait, why would you leave 99 sheep to go after one lost sheep who ran off? It didn't, it didn't make sense until it was me and I was that sheep. And then at a Maundy Thursday service, Amanda accepted the abundant gift of grace um, after she pictured Jesus kneeling to wash her feet. And just him taking like the mud and dirt off my feet. And the same thing that he has, he had been doing in my life, has continued to do in my life. I was just like, there's no denying it. Yes, Jesus, I need you. There's no pretending, there's no turning back. So Amanda, you have trusted in Jesus as your savior and Lord. Yes. yes. Before I said yes to Christ, I was questioning God's goodness and his purpose. Like, why did you give this to me? Why would you do this to Josh? Why do, why? Why me? And then to have this flip in, in my mindset to go, why not me? Like you chose me for this specifically and you saw me and said, I want that one for this. I want that one. I strayed for so long and so far away from him. And yet, just like that little lost sheep, he came after me. That's what I want for you as well. Why don't we pray? Lord, thank you for the desire that you have to come after us. Thanks God for the simplicity with which you just boiled it down for Nicodemus, knowing he was the sort that just needed the bottom line. Thanks God for the clarity that brings us. It brings us freedom, really. Freedom from a fear that there might be 613 other sorts of things we have to figure out and check off and do right and get sort of perfect or at least as close as we can. And it just frees us up to live into you, full of the power of your Holy Spirit energizing us. Lord, my hope and my prayer is that even now there would be some here who would say, 
in the quietness of this moment, I want Jesus. Friend, if you could, uh, if you need to borrow some words, you can borrow mine right now. As I pray aloud, you can pray silently, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my heart because I want to be born again. I need to be forgiven for my sins, cleansed from unrighteousness. I want to feel your love shed abroad in my heart. I want to be transformed. I want to discover the purposes for which you've created me and put me here. I want to be useful for your kingdom purposes. And so I'm asking that you would come in to me by the power of your Holy Spirit moving in and blowing inside of me. And even as the spirit, your spirit blows inside of me, that there would be an awakening of parts of my uh, soul that have been dead and lifeless or that have been phony and fake, that you would just cleanse me of those and bring new life within me. And not just for an hour or two, but for my lifetime, that this really would be the day that you chop me down and bring me back up. I want to receive your life. Friends, while your heads are, are bowed uh, and your eyes are still closed, I want to just ask you, if you prayed that prayer, would you just look at me? Because I want to uh, just establish eye contact. Amen. Good. 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 Wonderful. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Good. 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 Wonderful. I see you over there. Good. Praise the Lord. All right. I want to pray a second prayer. And this is a second category because I think there's many of you who you say, well, I have been born again. I truly have come to the Lord. I truly have trusted him. But maybe in the last months or the last year or the last several years, I've gotten off. I am like the sheep who had been found. And but then I managed to wander off again. And I need to come back. And so even uh, today, right now, I'm just uh, going to pray some words and you can borrow these words if they'd be helpful for you. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to restore me and to create in me a clean heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit in me. Change me, transform me, empower me, bring me back once more. Forgive me for my meandering off on my own or actively stomping off on my own. Won't you forgive me and help me to experience your grace even today, that grace that brings peace and love and calmness to the soul. Lord, we're praying all of these things in the strong name of Jesus as well. God, thank you for the things that you've been doing even today. I pray that they would just be the start of many good things yet to come in many a life. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day.
Well, hello and welcome to Postscript. I'm Kyle, young adult pastor here at Faith Bridge, sitting here with Ken, who just preached our third part in our shareable series called Have You Been Born Again? Uh, pastor Ken, we have a few questions in, sure. so ready to jump in. Uh, first one we have is, has the idea of the salvation prayer been around through the entirety of the church history, or is it a modern idea? Is simply saying the prayer what it means to be born again, and then they say, is John 3, 5 through 6 the only support for that idea of a salvation prayer? That's a very good question. I haven't studied the history of mm -hmm. the salvation prayer. Um, my instincts tell me that that has probably been some a handle right. that uh, developed over time to help a person have a tangible uh, sort of step to uh, s sort of c consider their entryway, mm -hmm. uh, point of passage mm -hmm. into the faith. It, it certainly would not be, that the, the, the verses in John 3 would not be the only uh, verses. Right. There's a host of good salvation verses. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved for it is with your uh, mouth that you confess and believe and it's with your heart that you believe and are saved. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so there's any number of uh, verses that point their way easily to the gospel and to salvation. Right. Um, the, the prayer is probably uh, just a handle that has evolved. I think it was very, it was very much popularized in the Great Awakening, if I'm not mistaken, maybe the 1700s, the 1800s, or maybe it was right after the Great Awakening, uh, and you had people like Finney who were coming along and, and creating sort of the the sawdust uh, trail in the in the tents that they would do the revivals right. and walk up here and um, that sort of that sort of thing. Okay. Was there another aspect of that? Did I answer it all? Um, is simply saying the prayer what it means to be born again? Well, let's Change talk about that. Prayers. No, uh, just reciting some words uh, is worthless. Right. <laughs> what, what is the, well, and that's what we try to lean into in verse eight. The winds of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. are effectual. You, they're going to cause something to to right. to to move, right. and so whether a person prayed a salvation prayer or not, uh, as their beginning point, the the question is, what evidence do we have that the Holy Spirit's working and moving? Right. In you? Let's let's look on that probably more than just. It's have, not just the words you say. Have you the said mantra, these it's, it's the thirty three words? Jesus yeah, transforms exactly. our life when we do that. Exactly. That's awesome. Good. Well, let's go to that second question that was uh, brought in. It says, what is the kingdom of God? And they go on to say, and I'll let you break it apart uh, okay. to answer the multiple parts of this. It says, what is the kingdom of God? Why does Jesus say, see the kingdom of God the first time and enter the kingdom of God the second time? What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? Sure. Well, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom okay. that God is the king of. Right. Um, and so we live in two kingdoms um, we read about 
um, in the book of Hebrews. We, um, we live in an earthly kingdom that is natural. We see that and the earthly kingdom has been pretty crazy lately with all of the acts of terror and mm -hmm. hate and everything. Um, but then when we um, are born again, we step into the spiritual kingdom of God. Right. Our citizenship now is in heaven. Sure, we still finish up our life here on earth in the natural kingdom, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the, the, the kingdom. And Nicodemus certainly knew there was a kingdom of right. God and he was trying his darndest to figure out how do I get into it and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and all of them, they were, tr they were doing their best. Right. And then Jesus just, just, just shatters all of their structures and says, no, I know what you want. Mm -hmm. You want to know how do you get in the kingdom? Right. I'm going to tell you right now. So that's what the kingdom um, is. What was the second part? Um, why does Jesus say, see the kingdom of God the first time and then enter the kingdom of God the second time? So, yeah, in verse 3 he says see and then 5 he says enter. I'm not certain it, it, why and maybe there's a deep meaning that I'm missing. I didn't come upon it in my study mm -hmm. other than I guess you have to see the kingdom to know it's there before you can enter right. uh, the kingdom. Maybe that was the progression um, that he was talking about. Um, don't have anything better for us on that. Then you see the front door before you can go. Well, yeah, the front door that's away. Right. That's right. Yeah. And the other one was the the water, uh, yes, the water and spirit. Water sure. And spirit. Well, to be born of water is to is, is birth in the natural realm, mm -hmm. because your water breaks. Mm -hmm. And what more is there to say about that? Um, so you're born of water physically, and then when we're born again, spiritually, what we're talking about today, we're born of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes into us um, as the evidence that we really have uh, crossed over and put our trust and our faith fully in what Jesus has done right. for us. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, thank you, uh, Ken, for that message and, sure. and telling us how we can be born again. And thank you for joining us at Postscript. We'll see you back next Sunday. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.